Well, if you have a copy of the scriptures this morning, let me invite you to turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis and the first chapter, Genesis 1. And the passage before us today is Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5. Let me invite you as you're able. Let's stand in honor of the reading and the hearing of God's word. Again, I'm reading from Genesis 1 in verse 1. Wherein Moses faithfully records, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. May God bless once again the reading and hearing of his word. And let us join in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, as we stand before the open Bible, we ask that you would give light unto our eyes. You are the one who said, let there be light. Give us the light of illumination. Give us the light uh, to be able to see the truth and to embrace it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are beginning today a series of expositional sermons through the book of Genesis. The last complete series that we did through a book of the Bible was Matthew, and we were in that for some two and a half years in Matthew. And then after we completed that, we spent a short period of time looking at some of the highlights from the book of Acts, and we completed that last Lord's Day. So now we're turning to Genesis. And not only is Genesis uh, the first book in the Old Testament, but it's the first book in all the Christian scriptures. So we looked at Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. Now Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament, the first book in the Christian scriptures. And we're going to be looking in this series, since Genesis is a longer book, we're going to be breaking it up and looking at parts. And so we're going to start today a series through the first 11 chapters, Genesis chapters 1 through 11. Let me just say with respect to some teaching here that the book of Genesis can be divided, I think, into three parts, three large parts. And we'll probably do this study over some years, God willing, and we'll take it one part at a time. The first part is Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And here we have a foundational record of what we could call primordial or primeval, the earliest history of this world and this creation and God's dealings with man. And it's going to begin with a description of the creation itself, God making the world. And then, of course, it's going to describe in Genesis 3 what we call the fall Man's fall into sin. But then even there, there's going to be a prophecy. We sometimes call it 
the Proto-Evangelium, the first prophecy of the gospel, as in Genesis 3.15, the Lord says, And I will put enmity between thee, speaking to the serpent and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. A prophecy of the ministry of Christ. The first part, again, Genesis 1-11. through The second part of Genesis begins in chapter 12. And it goes through verse or chapter 36. And this tells us about how the Lord who had created the world and who had seen the fall of man and who had promised the restoration of man, how he began to work through those whom we call the patriarchs. And that starts with Abraham in Genesis 12. And it goes on to uh, his son Isaac and then Isaac's son Jacob. And the Lord promises to Abraham that through his seed, all nations will be blessed. And of course, we know who is going to come through the seed of Abraham. We saw this in the beginning of Matthew. Matthew begins in Matthew 1.1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so the Lord is at work already, the very first book of the Bible, uh, working towards the coming of Christ. And then the third part of Genesis, the third big part, starts in Genesis 37 through the end of Genesis in, in chapter 50. And this is the account of one primarily of Jacob's sons, Joseph. And there's an account there of how the Lord worked through Joseph and how the Lord made sovereign provision to preserve his covenant people, eventually bringing them into Egypt. And so towards the end of Genesis, uh, we said in in Genesis 3.15, we have the Proto-Evangelium. And then towards the end of Genesis, in Genesis 49 and verse 10, there is a prophecy that is given to the tribe of Judah, one of the, the 12 tribes that come out of Jacob. And it says there, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. And so this is a prophecy that out of Judah, not only will there come King David, but in the fullness of time, the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, we could go to Matthew 1.1. Matthew, maybe still in our minds, the the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. One of the things that we discover in the book of Genesis is the revelation of the one true God and how he is sovereign over all things and how he is working out a purpose in this world that he has made. Genesis begins with the creation and this whole, what we'll call in Genesis 1-11, through this primeval or primordial history. There's definitely a sense in which that it is right to say that if you do not know and understand Genesis, you will never know and understand the rest of the Bible. Sometimes people act as though 
the Christian scriptures consist only of the New Testament. There was an early heresy that was led by a man named Marcion. He rejected the Old Testament completely. He said the God of the Old Testament was a vengeful, wrathful God. He liked the God of the New Testament. Well, it's the same God, isn't it? And the Old Testament and the New Testament. God of righteousness and God of grace in both. And we won't understand, really, the New Testament unless we understand the Old. And we won't understand it unless we understand the book of Genesis. One commentator I read this week said that almost every important church doctrine is found in what he called seed form in the book of Genesis. All the great doctrines are there, and they're in seed form, and as we go through the rest of the Bible, we see how that seed grows, and these things come to fulfillment that are spoken about. Let me just give you one example. If, you're, if you were looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and you might look at verses 21 and 22, where Paul writes, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. If you read that passage in 1 Corinthians and you didn't know the background of Genesis, if you didn't know who Adam is as the first man created by God, if you did not know about Adam's fall into sin in Genesis 3, and that how through that fall death came unto all men, you wouldn't understand what Paul was writing. And furthermore, you wouldn't understand how Christ came to be the new Adam who brings the hope of resurrection to all men, especially to believers who will experience the resurrection of life. So Genesis is foundational to understanding the scriptures, it's foundational to understanding our faith. Genesis is the first of five books in the Old Testament that we sometimes refer to as the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch literally means the five scrolls. Think about the Pentagon and outside of Washington, D.C. with its five sides. The Pentateuch means five scrolls. The Jews called these books the Torah. That's the Hebrew word for law. These books were written by Moses, who was the great lawgiver. And they are sometimes called the five books of Moses. There are several places in these five books where Moses records for us in the third person, speaking about himself, how God instructed him to write down these words. Just one example. In Exodus 34, verse 27, we read, Moses writing, and the Lord said unto Moses, write thou these words. And so Moses is the author of these first five books. He's the author of Genesis. The greatest affirmation of Mosaic authorship that Moses is the person who wrote these words comes in the New Testament because we find out there that this is what Christ taught. As over and again in the New Testament, he talks about the law of Moses and the prophets and the writings. You can look at some place like in Luke 24 when he speaks to the apostles after he's risen from the dead. He, he will say to them, I have fulfilled everything that was written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms. And so he refers to the Torah 
the Pentateuch as the law of Moses. When it comes to Moses' record of creation, someone might object, but Moses wasn't there. How could Moses describe creation if he wasn't there to observe it? And uh, I was reading this week John Calvin's commentary on Genesis, and he uh, put forward the idea. He said, he said, in Moses' day, he believed that there were people who had a, a memory that had been passed on from generation to generation of what had happened from the earliest days. So Adam and Eve had shared with Seth, and they had shared on down the line. Noah had shared with his sons on down the line all the things that happened. And then, Calvin says, in the time of Moses, the Lord saw fit to commit this history to writing for the purpose of preserving it in its purity. And Calvin adds to the skeptic who would say, well, Moses wasn't there. How could he record something like creation? Calvin said, ah, don't forget, this isn't just a work of Moses, is it? It's a work of God. It's a work of the Spirit of God. And the Spirit was bringing to Moses' remembrance the things that God had done and guiding him and writing down these things. In his introduction to his commentary on the book of Genesis, Calvin observed the intention of Moses in the beginning, in beginning his book with the creation of the world, is to render God, as it were, visible to us in his works. Why does the Bible start with creation? It's here to show us who God is from the very first page, to reveal unto us who this God is, who made the world, who made us, who sent forth Christ. Who is this God? Well, we start with the God who made this world. And so with that, let's turn now and let's walk through uh, these first five verses. And as we look at these first five verses, I want to suggest seven key points or seven lessons that we might draw from our passage. And the first thing that we'll start with is this lesson. The God of the Bible is the creator of all things out of nothing. The God of the Bible is the creator of all things out of nothing. And so in verse 1 it begins, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. One modern commentator noted, This verse serves as the theme sentence of the creation account, adding that it stands as a formal introduction and caption to the entire creation narrative. Think about that verse 1. There is so much said in such a brevity of words. We live in a world where people have lots of words and say nothing. Here are just a few words that says more than our minds can ever comprehend. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Well, that opening phrase is an absolute statement. It does not say that 
In the beginning, God gathered up the pre-existing materials so he could see what he could do with them. But it says, in the beginning, God created. One commentator points out that the Hebrew verb, which is bara, that is used here for to create or to make, has as its subject always and only God. Within the rest of the Hebrew Bible, this word is never used with a man as the subject. It's a term that's exclusively used with God as the subject, as the actor. And this same commentator explains that when men make things, they must use material that already exists. Right? Think about a contractor who wants to build a house or a craftsman who wants to build something like a piece of furniture. What is, what's one of the first things that he does? He makes a list of the materials that are needed. He goes out and gets those things. And so uh, he gets the wood, he gets the stone, he gets the glass to make the structure, the object that he wants to create. But when God creates... He does so out of nothing. In the beginning, God created, God made the heaven and the earth. The scholars call this ex nihilo creation, using that Latin phrase, out of nothing. That's how God made the world. He made it out of nothing. What did he make? The heaven and the earth. The scholars tell us that this is what they call a merism. Two opposites that are inclusive. And so when the inspired writer Moses here says that God created the heaven and the earth, he's basically giving us a span of things. He created everything from here to here. From here to here. He created what the Greeks would call the cosmos, what we call the universe. He created everything, even the parts of this world that we will never see and know about. The astronomers tell us how vast this world is. He made everything, and he made it out of nothing. This doctrine of ex nihilo creation is unique to biblical faith. The ancient philosophers, the Greeks, for example, believed that the matter, the stuff of this world had always existed. They believed in the pre-existence of matter. They believed that the stuff of this world is eternal. And many still believe this today, but the Bible teaches something altogether different. It teaches us that the only one who is eternal is God himself. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Before he made the world and the stuff in it, there was no world and there was no stuff in it. But God was, is, and will be. In Psalm 90 verse 2 it says, Before the mountains were brought forth, 
forever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Genesis 1.1 is where Christian theology begins. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The Bible declares from its very first verse that the God who made this world is distinct from his creation and he made it out of nothing. He is the one true God. He is transcendent. He is holy other than this world that he made. The theologians talk about the creator Creation distinction. That God is apart from, transcendent from his creation. This is by necessity a rejection of what is called pantheism. Pantheism is a a word that comes from two Greek words. Pan means all or every theism from God, theos. And a person is a pantheist if they believe that the creation has a spark of divinity in it. I just worship the world. I just worship creation. I worship the ocean or the sun or the moon or the stars. That's paganism. Whether it's in ancient form or in modern dress, the person who goes out and says, my God is is nature. No, the Bible teaches us that God is distinct from his creation. And... The Bible teaches us that he's a jealous God and he will not share worship with anyone or anything else. As Christians, we do not worship the creation, but we admire the creation as a testimony to the creator, as a testimony to the one true God who made it. Later on, Moses will explain to us how God gave a distinct role and purpose to human beings as as stewards, managers of this world. But we don't worship it. We see it as a testimony to the greatness of our God. Second of seven observations. God took the formless materials which he made from nothing in order to shape and set in order this world. And we see this starting in verse 2 where it says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. We noted just a few moments ago an analogy. A human builder or a human artisan, a craftsman, must gather his materials. But God, who is God, who has Godhood, who has all power. He doesn't gather those pre-existing materials because there were no pre-existing materials. He creates them. He makes them out of nothing. But here now in verse 2, we have the description of him gathering these, what we might call raw materials that he had made. Verse 2 tells us that the earth was without form and void. If you ever have the opportunity to study the Hebrew language, I know Ben is having an opportunity to study it now. Almost everybody who studies Hebrew 
and translates this opening chapter, they rest upon a phrase here in Hebrew that's, that's translated as without form and void. And in Hebrew, it's tohu wabohu. Tohu wabohu. Everything, these materials were tohu and they were bohu. Tohu wabohu. And it was kind of a Hebrew phrase meant to say something like, something that's raw, it's formless, it lacks structure and shape, it's just all tohu wabohu. And maybe you'll just start to use that. You come home and your house is a mess, you say, oh, it's just tohu wabohu. It's just a mess. It's formless and void. And it says that this is what God did. He made these materials, and there they are laid out before him, lacking structure and shape. In addition, it says, Moses adds here, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And we can envision a watery surface enveloped in thick darkness. As I read through this part of verse 2, it reminds me, if you've ever been to an artist's studio, Maybe you go to visit an artist's studio, and there are no finished works there. He's, he's just gathering the, the materials so that he can create the, 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 the art object. And maybe you see the empty canvas. Maybe you see the tubes of paint. Uh, maybe you see the empty brushes and the drop cloth, etc. Or perhaps you go into a, the, the studio of a sculptor, and you see the block of granite or marble, and you see the picks and and the chisels, and you think, what, what, can, what could ever come out of this? But if you'll stick around long enough, you'll see the artist create a, a beautiful picture or carve out a, a beautiful sculpture of some sort. And that, that's sort of what it seems to me that verse 2, the way it starts out, is God with these raw materials from which he is going to make the world. Calvin makes an interesting point in his commentary regarding this creation account from Moses in Genesis 1. He notes that those who think God made the world in a moment are in error. Could he have made the world in a moment? Yes, he could have. But that's not the way that he chose to do it. Moses tells us, as the Catechism also teaches... And we'll see this as we continue to work through Genesis 1, that God made the world in the space of six days and all very good. Calvin says God did this for the purpose of accommodating his work to the capacity of man. For he says, if God made the world in but a moment, we would be prone to pass over his infinite glory. Verse 1 would have been enough for the creation account, wouldn't it? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. But God is accommodating this account to our capacity. And so he's going to, he's going to show how God did this work intentionally in the space of six days. And Calvin says, by doing this, God was correcting this fault that we would overlook his Glory, and he's applying to us the most suitable remedy when he distributes the creation of the world into successive portions that we might fix our attention and we might be compelled as if God is laying his hand upon us to pause and to reflect on his greatness and his power. 
Calvin said that of the days of creation, he said that about the days of creation, but we can also apply it here to what we see from the very beginning where God is drawing together these formless and void materials, this tohu wabohu, and he's gathering up these things to make all that is, the things he called into existence out of nothing. Third of seven observations, creation reveals to us the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see this at the end of verse 2, where it says, And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The first explicit reference to the Holy Spirit appears on the first page of Scripture. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The the word that's rendered here in the authorized version as describing the Spirit as moving over these formless waters could also be translated as hover. One commentator pointed out that the only other place where this particular word for moving or hovering appears in the entire Pentateuch is in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 11, which describes an eagle hovering over its young. In the King James Version, it says of that eagle that it fluttereth over her young to protect and to nurture it. And the Holy Spirit is described hovering, moving over uh, this tohu wabohu to bring about the world, the, the beautiful, orderly world that God will make. What is being revealed here to us is that creation is the work of the triune God, the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. And indeed, when you look through the whole uh, testimony of the Bible, you see that creation is often described and attributed to each person of the Godhead. In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. That's the Father, God the Father. Often God the Father is simply referred to as God. You may well know that there are places in the Bible that describe the creation as the work of God the Son. So, for example, in the beginning of the Gospel of John, John 1, verses 1 and following, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. God the Son is the Creator. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. The Son is the creator, the maker of the worlds. And finally then, the creation is also the work of the Spirit of God. As it says here, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And this is expressed in other places, like in Psalm 104, verse 30. 
It says, Thou sendest forth thy spirit, they are created. And this Trinitarian emphasis in creation shows up in other places. You may be aware of the fact, and we'll get to these passages later in this exposition, but there are places in Genesis where uh, God is speaking, God is referring to God's self, and uh, there's the use of what is sometimes called the honorific plural or the plural of majesty. And, and look at one example of this in Genesis 1.26, talking about the creation of man. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. God says, let us make man. And you can also see this in Genesis 3 and verse 22. And the Lord said, behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And you will also see this showing up in Genesis 11 and verse 7. Go to, let us go down and there confound their language. And of course, Christians have always seen in references like these indications of the fact that the one God is from the beginning, from all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Fourth of seven lessons that we learn from these opening words of this creation account, we learn about the power of the word of God. We learn about the power of the word of God. We see this in verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Though creation unfolds in a process of six days, here is a point where God calls something into existence, light, by what we could call the fiat power of his word. He commands and his word is accomplished. Again, we see here, Genesis is so important for this, theology, the doctrine of God. We see God as a sovereign king. He is indeed the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. What does a sovereign do? He issues his decrees and his word is accomplished. In Psalm 33 and verse 6 it says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. We will see this divine power, by the way, exercised by Christ, the eternal Son of God, having taken on flesh the word incarnate during his earthly ministry. And you'll notice that Christ in his earthly ministry will go about and he will often give commands and his word will be accomplished. Whether he says to the paralytic, thy sins be forgiven thee, or if he says to the paralytic, take up thy bed and go into thine house in Matthew 9, or when he says to Lazarus, who's lying in the tomb in John 11, Lazarus, come forth. And these are one of the many ways that 
we see the emphasis upon who Christ is. Who is it that issues decrees and commands as a sovereign king and it is done? It is God. And here in creation, God is bringing about existence through the word of his power. The first thing is recorded here in verse 3 of Genesis 1 that God calls into existence is light. Of course, this is in contrast to the unformed materials described in verse 2 as darkness, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The light that God creates here in verse 3 is not a natural light. It's not a light that comes from the sun, the moon, or the stars, because they are not created until day 4 of creation, as it's recorded in verses 14 through 19. This is a supernatural light. Some of the Jewish rabbis describe this as the effulgent splendor of the divine presence. This is an omnipotent God. He does as he will, and he calls light into existence without any natural cause. He creates it from nothing. Fifth of our seven observations is the goodness of the creation. The goodness of the creation. Look at verse 4 as it begins. And God saw the light that it was good. This is the first of a string of declarations made throughout Genesis 1, throughout this creation account, where Moses tells us that God looked upon that which he had made, and he declares it to be good. And again, we're going to see this going to punctuate this account. Uh, if you look at verse, the end of verse 10, after he creates the dry land, it says, uh, and God saw that it was good. He creates the dry land and the seas. He declares it to be good. Look at verse 12. He brings forth the grass and the herbs and so forth. And God saw that it was good. Look at verse 18. Uh, where he brings about the heavenly bodies. He says, it says, and God saw that it was good. Look at verse 21, uh, where he brings forth the living creatures in the waters and the, the winged fowl. And it says, and God saw that it was good. Look at verse 25, where God makes the beasts of the earth and the cattle and so forth. At the very end of verse 25, it says, and God saw that it was good. And then the capstone, look at verse 31 of Genesis 1. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And so punctuating this narrative, starting in verse 4, the dec declaration that the first thing created, this, this light uh, beyond the, the, the building materials, that this light calling it into order and existence, his declaration that it is good is the beginning again of this repeated theme. This is an important point. It's not an unimportant point. Yes, we know that Genesis 3 is going to come. There is going to be a fall into sin. There's going to be the tarnishing of creation so that Paul will say in Romans 8 that the creation is groaning for its restoration, for its redemption. But even the fall of man will not obliterate the goodness of creation. The Bible is creation affirming. 
It's not like the Greek philosophies that said, well, maybe your soul is good, but the body is a prison and the world is a prison and your body has to escape this evil body and this evil creation. Biblical Christianity is not like the Eastern religions which say the world is evil and your goal is to become so indifferent to it that you can escape any concern over this world and have your own esoteric nirvana. The Bible says that the world was created good and despite the fall of man, it's still good. And in fact, the Bible says that at the end of the ages, that which has been broken by human sin will be restored and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And we'll probably talk more as this series continues about how a biblical worldview affects everything. Do you think it's an accident that science developed in the Western world where Christianity had an influence? Of course not. Because we believe the world is good. We believe we're stewards of it. We believe we're we're to study it, to to manage it. And it's good and it will be redeemed in the end by God. It makes all the difference in the world as to how one lives. Six of seven observations. God made a division between light and darkness. God made a division between light and darkness. Look at verse 4, the second half of verse 4. And God divided... The light from the darkness. We'll see later in verse 6 that God will divide the waters from the waters to make the firmament. He's a dividing God. He sets things apart. We see him at work again with the tohu wabohu. And he's dividing the light from the darkness. This is depicted here as a physical demarcation between light and darkness anticipating a distinction that will be drawn in verse 5 between God's creation of the day and the night. And again, God is doing this before there is ever the creation of the sun on day 4. God does as he pleases. He can create day without sun. He's God. He can do as he pleases. One cannot help, however, but to see even in this description before the fall of man into sin, a moral distinction that is being made here and anticipated. That God is the one who makes the distinction between light and darkness. He's one who makes the distinction between good and evil. This division displays even before man's fall into sin the righteousness of God. The world is not amoral. There is light and there is darkness. There is good and there is evil. It's not an amoral world that God has created. In Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20, the prophet will write, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Oh, friends, don't we live in a world today where people hold up darkness and say, this is light. You ought to affirm this to be light. If you don't affirm this to be light, you're narrow-minded. 
You're bigoted. But the God of the Bible is one who divides light from darkness. There's truth and falsehood. There's life and death. There's light and darkness. And there is a God who distinguishes between them, who makes a distinction between them. Seventh point we want to look at in verse 5. God calls the light day and the darkness he calls night. We see this again in verse 5. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. To give something a name is to say that one has mastery over it. Think about, uh, if we could draw a dim analogy, parents. You, know, you have a child. You, know, you have the responsibility of naming your child. That's a big responsibility, isn't it? You're going to put the name on this kid that he or she is going to carry around for the rest of his or her life. Better choose a good name. Right? When you name, you, you, and it's your, I mean, how would it be if you have a child and somebody comes and said, I'm going to name your kid for you. You're like, what? This is my child. I'm going to give the name to my child. Giving a name shows the ownership, the, the mastery, the, 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 the sovereignty over something. And here it is God who establishes the, his mastery over day and night. What is God doing? God is creating here the basic patterns of life. We might even say, the philosopher might even say, God is creating time. God is creating the boundaries of time by creating day and night. What's really interesting is later on in Genesis 2, he will give to the first man a duty of naming the other creatures, passing off a responsibility to them. But here he's naming day and night. Moses concludes, an evening and morning were the first day. Again, all this is done with no sun, which isn't created until day four. But God is, before the sun, establishing the 24-hour day, the span of time which encompasses and measures our days. And, of course, he's setting the stage for the six-day creation as it will unfold in what is to come. Well, friends, we've worked through the passage. Hopefully we've drawn some applications. Let me, let me see if we can... Uh, draw a few more explicitly. We have in Genesis 1, 1 through 5, as we start this journey of expositing Genesis 1 through 11, we have uh, foundational truths that are being placed before us about who the God of the Bible is, about how this world in which we live came to be, and we'll see, eventually, we'll see revealed to us what our purpose is in this world, in this life. Let me close with, with three thoughts that we can draw from this passage. First, I was struck by one commentator who said that in Genesis 1 through 5, you find not only affirmations of who God is and what the world is, but you also find 
five denials of what we could call five great isms. Five denials of five great isms. This is the via negativa, teaching by negatives. What's being denied? We talked positively about what it says about God. What's being denied here in Genesis 1, 1 through 5? First, it denies atheism. In the beginning, God. It declares from from verse 1, there is a God. Yes, what are men doing? They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, the so-called new atheists. There's no God. Nobody can tell me what to do. It declares there is a God. It denies atheism, as it says in, in Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. Second, it denies pantheism. We already talked about this. God is not to be identified with his creation. There is a, a, a creator-creation distinction. Third, it denies polytheism. There are not many gods. There are not many paths to God. You take your path and I'll take mine. No, there is one God. Fourth, it denies humanism. The idea that we made this world and it is what we make of it. We're in charge. We're autonomous. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Fifth, it denies evolutionism. The scientific theory of evolution is incompatible with Christianity, biblical Christianity. This world didn't come about by happenstance. It didn't come about by fortune. It came about with a directing, sovereign creator. So it denies that the five isms, atheism, pantheism, polytheism, humanism, evolutionism. Second, Second of three applications. To the person who says he cannot accept the Bible's teaching of creation due to intellectual or rational objections. Let me pause here. Are you in that category? Have you ever met someone in that category? Maybe had a conversation with someone and, you know, I can't, I can't be a Christian. I can't accept the Bible because I can't believe, in, I can't believe God could create the world. That sort of thing. What's our response to that? We respond by saying that we believe there are good evidences to believe in the Bible's account of creation. But we would also say that in the end, you will only understand and embrace this teaching if you're a believer. If God changes your mind and heart and takes away the darkness and allows you to see things clearly. Calvin discusses this and he calls attention to this verse and I'm thankful in reading that commentary to have this this verse called to my attention. It makes so much sense. It's Hebrews 11 verse 3. Hebrews 11 is the so-called faith hall of fame. And listen to this. I think Paul wrote Hebrews. In Hebrews 11 3 it reads, Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made 
of things which do appear. How is it in the end that we believe in the God of creation, the God of the Bible, and in creation itself? Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. We'll never be able to prove creation to you. We can't give you enough evidences. You would suppress the truth and unrighteousness if we piled them up. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth forth his handiwork. Men have a testimony every day to this world. And they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. You will not come to see it till by faith you understand that God framed this world. Third, relatedly, the creation account points us towards Christ. The creation account points us towards Christ. Everything in creation could be encompassed in the heading in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now we know, however, there are some works which God did and some events of holy history which are not explicitly recorded as they are here. We know, for example, that God made the angels And we know that some of the angels rebelled against him. We know that at some point, God entered into, within his triune self, a covenant of redemption. And out of that covenant of redemption came the plan of salvation. The Father purposed to save. The Son covenanted to be made flesh and to go to the cross and the Spirit covenanted to apply the redemption purchased by Christ. We know that God foreknew, elected, and foreordained those who would be saved. As Paul will put it in Ephesians 1.4, He hath chosen us in Him before the foundations of the world. We could well meditate on the decree that was made on day one. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Many years after Moses had written this inspired account of creation, the apostle John was prompted by the Spirit of God to echo these very words. You ever noticed how John 1 begins like Genesis 1? John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Lagos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's talking about the second person of the Godhead. God the Son, the Lagos, the Word, was not a creature. He was not a part of the creation, but one in essence with God the Father. And John will continue to write about him in John 1, 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And in John 1, 5, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. The Apostle Paul will draw an inspired analogy in his second letter to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. And he will suggest to us 
that just as God brought forth light on the first day of creation, he must also bring about light on the first day an unregenerate man is saved, on the first day of new creation. So in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul will write, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, Genesis 1-3, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God made the world and everything in it. God made light in the first creation and in the new creation. He sends light so that we might see and know Christ, have our hearts changed and be drawn unto him. Amen? Let me invite you to stand together. Let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we do give thee thanks today for thy word and for this such a foundational start to the Christian scriptures. And help us in the days to come, Sundays to come, as we're going to continue to meditate upon uh, this foundational teaching. Help it to be profitable for us individually as Christians. Help it to be profitable for us as a church. And help us to learn more about thyself as, as thou art pleased to reveal thyself through thy word unto us. Continue to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.